So it's been another week. With coronavirus case numbers progressively on the decline, Australia is beginning to get a taste of what it feels like to get back to normal. With word of restrictions becoming more and more eased within the next few weeks, the Australian public is being teased by the memories of life before COVID. But although, like me, I'm sure you are too eager to experience life post a worldwide pandemic, the question of what will be our new normal still remains a bit of a mystery. RMIT Journalism welcomes you back for the seventh episode of the Undercover Podcast. I'm Caitlin Califatis. In today's episode, we will be exploring the concept of how temporary circumstances may not necessarily call for temporary measures. We've all heard the horror stories of life post-COVID, articles cluttering your newsfeed warning you about the unforeseen changes that we as a population have to face together. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. The titles that say something like, pubs and clubs will never be the same, or international travel may adapt to a new normal. All these headlines are dimming the foreseeable light at the end of the tunnel. But we have to remember, unexpected change doesn't always have to be so bad. During the coronavirus pandemic, more people than ever before have been reading the news. But more readers doesn't mean more subscribers or higher profits. Local newspapers around Australia have shuttered due to the evaporation of advertising revenue. Major news organisations have struggled to manage a rising tide of misinformation. The biggest change to the news industry since the advent of the internet is here. With reporters and academics trying to work out what that looks like, Josh Martin takes a closer look. Good morning, everybody. Thanks very much for being here this morning. Thanks very much for coming, everyone. Here's the update in Australia. A year ago, a parliamentary press conference hardly stopped the nation. But the coronavirus pandemic has seen millions of Australians wait with bated breath for news apps to update on their phone. The newsrooms behind those updates have undergone some very serious changes, perhaps forever. My name's Rachel Dexter. I'm a multimedia reporter at The Age in Melbourne. At the moment, there is not one person in the Age newsroom. It is sitting there empty. Everybody, in a way, has become a coronavirus reporter in some way or another, whether you're the arts reporter or the sports reporter or, you know, an investigative reporter. There are so many stories to be told about this thing. Um, and, uh, and everybody's doing their job in a way because this, this thing is just permeating every kind of aspect of life. Rachel has been on the front line of coronavirus reporting for The Age during the crisis. The 166-year-old newspaper has continued to print daily, put together entirely by staff who are working remotely. At the start, I think we all thought, how the hell is this going to happen? How is this going to work? And I think there was a lot of genuine kind of fear in the room when we were told that. I love all of my colleagues and I love my newsroom, but we are a legacy organisation. We are a print you know, organisation and... and Change has not always been our strong suit. To make matters more difficult, the spread of fake news has also accelerated. Rachel was there earlier this month as anti-lockdown protesters gathered outside the Victorian State Library. I 
think that the next big thing for the next sort of existential fight we have on our hands is um, how to counter that, that those narratives that are becoming more and more kind of powerful at the moment, especially once a vaccine becomes um, available. And that's going to be a whole other kettle of fish, I think. But outside Melbourne, there's a quieter and more desperate struggle. Dozens of local newspapers, including the century-old Sunraiser Daily, have halted printing altogether as advertising revenue has dried up. It has a huge impact if if a local community doesn't have a reliable, credible service, absolutely. So um, we've been arguing just of late, uh, as part of some of the work that, um, that I've been doing, is that local newspapers are actually very much an essential service. Christy Hess is a researcher into the future of local news at Deakin University. She's worried about local news post-pandemic. And I guess you only have to see the importance of all the significance of that. Um, with all of the, the international media coverage around the pages and pages of death notices uh, from the, uh, the out-of-regions of Italy that were, that were being published in the local newspapers. Do you think this changes the very function of local news? It's really important that local news providers focus on all things local. And, I mean, that just seems pretty logical, doesn't it? But that's not what's been happening uh, pretty much for the last decade. So the one thing I would be really loath to see would be a continuation of what, what we've termed a centralisation and dispersion model that so many local newspapers have actually really succumbed to. What I mean by that is that we've had a lot of draining of local news production resources to metro areas or even offshore like India and the Philippines. And I think that has to change. Right. And the collapse here obviously has a lot to do with the evaporation of advertising revenues. Do you think there's a viable model that could and will or should form in its place? I think one of the things I've identified probably some years ago was the problem with government advertising revenue. That's just a, you know one component. And that's been, uh, over time, a huge support for local newspapers. So it's actually been a type of silent subsidy for, for more than a century. There really needs to be an overhaul um, of that revenue stream to, to look at, uh, at, at the future sustainability of, of local papers. Even though the journalism industry is historically slow to move, this might force its hand. All I can hope is that hopefully, finally this maybe triggers the conversations that need to be had about reinventing the model. It is crazy to me and to many other people and anyone else who's run a business that you could have more demand for a product than any other time in, you know, recent history. You could have more readers than ever and more eyeballs than ever and yet be losing money. So it doesn't, that doesn't make sense there's not many other businesses you can think of where your the demand for your product increases and your profits fall thanks very much for being here this morning that was josh martin with that story if there's anything positive covid19 has given us it's time while most of us are still working or studying from home being in lockdown has given more hours than we know what to do with And some of us are taking the time to reflect. Reporter Rachel Neo scrutinises her own work-life balance with the help of a friend. Not something you would hear in my room most nights. The whir of my dying laptop and me furiously typing. 
either working on an assignment, my own writing, or trying to word an email perfectly. The work never stops. Even as I go on walks, my mind wanders back to my to-do list and what's next. I speak to a psychology major from the University of Melbourne and fellow Singaporean, Arisha Yeo, about toxic productivity. I haven't heard the term toxic productivity all that much, but I do think it's really related with sort of the, the hustle culture and the culture of sort of over-glorifying productivity. Like Arisha, most of us aren't familiar with the phrase. If you Google it, there are videos dating a couple of years old, but most of the content were published just after the world we knew spiralled out of control. Studybreaks.com defines it as something similar to workaholism and hustle culture, an outlook that encourages people to exhaust themselves to achieve success. For me, sheltering from home has really shown me how much I rely on physical boundaries to keep my life in check. At school, I would try to get as much work done so I could take a break at home, spend some time reading or watching videos. Now, the only time that I seem to take a break are the unintentional YouTube rabbit holes I've fallen into, and not without a lot of guilt afterwards. So boundaries has been so, so important since we've all been stuck at home. <laughs> I think that that's something everyone's struggling with. My self-worth is independent on, dependent on how much I work. So setting boundaries around how much time I want to set aside for self-care, setting boundaries around how much energy I have to give to projects, to school. For example, like if an assignment is taking up a lot of time, you might have less time for sort of other other projects, student projects that you're doing or hobbies. And I think learning how to be okay with that. And something really important that I saw in the beginning of the pandemic, someone said that this is a global pandemic. We're not all just taking vacations at home and it's so much more important to come out of this healthy, safe, alive. Since the start of the health crisis, I've noticed posts on social media with captions like, if you don't come out of isolation with a new skill, it's not that you didn't have time, you just didn't have discipline. Arisha feels very strongly about them. Yeah, I... I really hate those posts. Like, I think that just puts so much unnecessary pressure on people. And from like that psychology standpoint, like we are all we are social creatures, and we all have needs for acceptance and belonging, and we all have a need to fit in or to want to fit in. And if you're constantly bombarded with messages of how you you need to be a certain way, you need to be productive to be worthy. If an individual is in that environment, it can lead to a lot of self defeating negative beliefs where a person might start to feel like if they don't do this and if they don't achieve this, they won't be accepted by, by the peers, by the wider society. And that can lead to you know poor self-esteem, comparison with others, etc. That really hit home for myself. And I think it will for a lot of others as well. We don't realize that our self-worth and productivity is so tightly linked, and it shouldn't be. We also have to remember that toxic productivity isn't just about schoolwork or your 9-to-5 job. It includes self-improvement as well. That can be such a fine line for so many people because self-improvement is always seen as such an amazing thing, right? For me, the way I like to approach that is being being really curious about where this drive for self-improvement comes from like asking yourself are you trying to improve because 
you have a, a low self-worth? Are you trying to improve because you feel like you have to? Are you trying to improve because it feels like it would make you more socially you know, accepted or valued? Or are you trying to improve from a place of real self-care and compassion? I think having that distinction can be really helpful. And when that drive for self-improvement comes from self-care, I feel like it's also being able to say like, hey, here's something that I really want to get better at. I want to build up this skill. I want to be healthier. But I'm also worthy when I don't fully succeed. Arisha and I haven't been in Australia too long. But comparing our experiences back home and here, there thankfully seems to be a healthier balance between achievement and self-care in Australia. I feel like coming from Singapore, we over-glorify exhaustion and we over-glorify overworking. There's this image that if you're somehow you're sacrificing sleep, you're not eating well, if you're sacrificing your social life, you're sacrificing self-care, then wow, you must be a really hardworking student, like you must be a really good student. That's that association, which that doesn't have to be true at all. It's been a rough couple months, but we need to keep looking forward. Striking that healthy balance between our obligations and our needs will always be a work in progress. But Arisha has learned something I feel we should all start being mindful of as we come out of isolation. Something that I'm trying to learn is that self-care is productive. Like talking about productivity, right? That's, that's an idea that's introduced to me by, by another psychologist online. I think that we don't often see taking care of self as a productive act. But it is because without, without self-care, without adequate sleep, without adequate rest, without nourishment, we really can't show up in all the other areas of our lives. People across Australia have been increasing their physical exercise while stuck at home during the coronavirus lockdown. Whether it's walking, running or riding a bike, more people than ever have been taking on new exercise routines. But the question is, will it last? For triathlete and Ironman competitor Liz Bell, the lockdown has come with both positives and negatives. Emily Lane Kapitanovich spoke to Liz about how the lockdown has affected her training schedule and preparation for such events. The sound of the horn at the start of a race is something triathlete and Ironman competitor Liz Bell is quite familiar with. However, this season has been a little different than any years in the past. That was a two weeks year triathlon and that was cancelled um, that just on that weekend. So that was the first one that didn't really go ahead. And then there was going to be one another month after that. Uh, I think it was the 30th of April that was cancelled. And they've decided to put those two at the end of the year. Usually the 2XU Triathlon Series takes place across six events at the Elwood, Sandringham, St Kilda and Brighton beaches in Melbourne. But due to the COVID-19 restrictions, event organisers had to postpone the final two triathlon events of the season. Instead, they've decided to combine the events and push them back to October 25th, a mere five weeks before next season. On top of this, the Cairns Ironman, which was scheduled for June and which Liz was intending to compete in, was also pushed back to later in the year. That will be my next goal, but it means training over winter, like the full June, July, August, doing all long um, training, because that's like the Ironman, the 3.8k swim, 
180k bike on in the full like 42k marathon. Liz works as a casual relief teacher, meaning she's employed to fill in for any full-time or part-time teachers who may be absent for a number of reasons. But with students and teachers mostly operating from home, there's been near to no work. Throughout the COVID-19 isolation, it has been observed that people are engaging more in physical activity. Perhaps it's to ward off stress or to escape the house for a bit. But for Liz, physical activity is a means of preparation for her next event. We haven't had any work because there's not many students at school. So I guess I have done more training during the day than I would have if I was working. So well, the smaller ones I would have done, like kept up some um, training with a bit of speed work to keep up the speed over shorter distances. And once the um, 2XU run was serious as over, I was going to like increase my cycle distance a lot and increase my running distance a lot and drop the intensity. So that was the plan. Still have been doing long runs on my own. So I did 18 kilometres last Friday. And um, I've been doing a few longer rides on my own as well, which is not enjoyable because it's easy to do it with the group. It's been good to get that extra training in and extra rest. But in late March, gyms and swimming pools closed their doors indefinitely. So despite this increase in training hours, there was only a capacity to cover two-thirds of the training needed to complete a triathlon, let alone an Ironman. Swimming's been the main problem because the pools are all closed. Yeah. And the beach, a few people are swimming at the beach, but, you know, got to be careful it's getting colder. <laughs> I think the bay is about 15 degrees now. It's not so enjoyable. Prior to this all happening, I was swimming three or four times a week and about three or four kilometres a session. And I, you know, I haven't had the, the option to do that now. So swimming will be the one I've got to um, make up the most time on. This episode is all about permanent change. So is the change actually permanent? With restrictions easing, allowing people to exercise in larger groups, the incentive to continue physical activity is still there, especially because people are being urged to continue to work from home. You know, when you're with other people, they make you go faster and just more enjoyable having a chat and training with people and trying to train on your own. With the colder weather coming, it's like you've just got to push yourself a bit harder. Whereas, you know, when you've got friends to meet and people not to let down, you sort of tend to stick to it a little bit more. In an interview with the ABC, health and fitness expert Dr John Buckley said that once restrictions have been lifted, people may persist with the exercise routines they adopted during the pandemic. However, he said that people are likely to revert back to old habits. If I'm working a lot, if I get a lot of calls to work, I definitely train less because you just, after a day, you're just more tired and you've got to do the housework. But, but I hope I can get going again with the group training. I mean, it's gonna, the weather's going to be harder but hopefully I can get back on board doing longer rides and more speed work again. So that's that's dropped off a little bit, hopefully. And especially the pool, I can't wait for the swimming pools to reopen again. That was Emily Lane Kapitanovich reporting on how annual sporting events are too being impacted by the coronavirus. Volunteers are found in all parts of our community. They help out at schools, community hubs and charities. 
But what happens when COVID-19 prevents volunteers from helping out? Claudia Scubell looked into some of the challenges volunteers and their organisations are facing. As far as volunteers are concerned, because I would say 85%, if not 90% of the volunteers, if not even more, would be over 70. So if they, if they don't have people back over 70 because we're vulnerable, they're going to not be able to staff the shops. Volunteers play an incredibly important part in the community. They run opportunity shops, battle bushfires, rattle cans, conserve our planet. The list goes on. Organisations rely on the generosity of Australians to donate their time. Without volunteers, many would struggle to fulfil their duties. But what happens when volunteers can't volunteer? Coronavirus has impacted so many aspects of our society. It has put our senior community at risk, led to social distancing, cancelled events Australia-wide, and caused the closure of the hospitality and retail industries. These restrictions have left not-for-profit organisations without the means to raise funds or use volunteers. Well, as far as the organisation is concerned, it's knocked their funding out of the water. I do know they're not getting any money in. They haven't reopened. They're just doing, they're doing it online. I don't know how well that's going. That's Denise Gadd. Denise has been a volunteer at the Family Life Opportunity Shop in Blackrock for the past five years. She's 78. When COVID-19 hit, the op shop was closed and volunteers sent home. Family Life relies on its op shops as their main source of funding. But with many volunteers within the high-risk category, they remain closed. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, in 2014, 31% of adults across Australia volunteered for a not-for-profit organisation. Of those volunteers, 35% were aged between 65 and 74. With older persons most at risk of contracting a more severe case of COVID-19, non-profit organisations are struggling. Bazcare is a not-for-profit aged care provider in Canterbury, Melbourne. On top of running social housing and care homes for the aged, they deliver 30,000 meals on wheels every year. Bazcare utilises 200 volunteers to aid with these deliveries and run social support activities. With their clients and many volunteers within the high-risk category, they've had to turn to paid staff. We had to stop using our 200 volunteers to deliver meals because the volunteers, many of those are people of quite senior years and certainly uh, most of them would be over 70 and they're of course are a high risk group so we had to um, use um, our own paid staff to deliver the meals which was quite a significant commitment so it meant that other activities that were being run were curtailed or cancelled. Bernard Corsa, a volunteer on the board of Bazcare since 2002, says the loss of volunteers on top of dealing with the fallout of the virus had quite an impact. COVID-19 has put immense costs on the organisation. Um, staffing costs, we've also had to pay premiums to buy gloves, to buy sanitizer. I won't say price gouging, but you know, some prices um, you know, tripling for things. The virus has brought on unprecedented costs and losses for these organisations and they are keen for things to return to normal. As the restrictions unwind, um, there will be the 
we, we will gracefully accept the return of those volunteers because at the moment having our paid staff delivering meals means there are other activities in running an organisation that can't be um, given their full attention. Denise is more than happy to return to volunteering. I've had both my flu shots, I've had my pneumonia booster. But currently there are more questions than answers. Will over 60s be allowed to return? Will small stores be able to support social distancing? Will donations be an issue? It'll change the whole face of opportunity shops, you know. And are people going to want to buy stuff that's been donated um, in this, you know, health scary climate? I don't know. Do volunteers want to touch the stuff? You know, you've got to think about that as well. Where's it come from? If you don't know the per- if it's just been dumped out the back, how do you know where it's come from? There is no doubt coronavirus has brought with it a lot of change. As restrictions are lifted around the country, questions have been raised as to whether things will return to normal. We're unfolding lockdown into a cautious opening and a gradual opening because, as you know, we still can't open restaurants. You might have now 10 people at a funeral and that sort of thing, where once it was only five. Um, but there'll be this uh, this intermediate period between now as we unwind and finding the vaccine and then after two years um, when there is a vaccine or hopefully a vaccine, well, that will be a that will be a different environment and there, there may be long-term changes, but really a bit, a bit too early to, um, to say. While it may be too early to make calls on the permanent changes coronavirus may have on these organisations, there is one thing that is sure. Things won't be returning to normal anytime soon. But I think the one thing is, is people browse in op shops. They don't just run in and grab something, like the chemist or coals or something like that. They're not in there like for five minutes. They're in there for a minimum of 15, 20 minutes. I think that will change too, you see. I just don't think browsing in an op shop is going to be quite the same. And that was Claudia Scubel with the story. And that brings us to the end of today's episode of the Undercover Podcast. We'd love to hear your story or even just a small thought or opinion on what we're all going through right now. You can leave us a message on 03-9018-5005. If you are comfortable, give us a call and leave your name and number so we can get back in touch. Or head over to our Twitter at cover underscore podcast to DM us a video of what your isolation currently looks like. Until next time, look after one another, stay safe, and we look forward to having you back for next week's episode. Episode 7 of RMIT's Undercover Podcast was brought to you by reporters Claudia Skubel, Emily Lane Kapitonovich, Joshua Martin and Rachel Neo. Presented by Caitlin Kalafatis and produced by Michaela Van Loon and Isabel Harris.